Happy New Year, friends. Coffee and Deer podcast, starting off 2023 with Nick and the Doctor. And we're excited to kick off the New Year shows. And we're going to start off today by talking about giving back by the way of venison donation. Our guests today are going to be Josh Wilson. He's the executive director of Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry. And he's going to be joined by Peter Churchborn, the director of NRA Hun- uh, director of the NRA Hunters Leadership Forum. And so to kick off 2023, the doctor and I are treading into new and treacherous waters by having multiple guests on at one time. So, you know, this could be a B-team report waiting to happen or a real-time B-team report. Uh, this is also an Ask NDA Anything episode. I just mentioned the B-team report. We always have that. And because we've had some time in between shows, I can assure you that the doctor and I each have some uh, good slash bad ones to report on. So that'll be good. We also have some deer hunting updates to give. We've had a chance to get back into the woods a little bit. And so with that, let's say hello to a man that thrives on finding adversity and then overcoming it. It's the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. All right. How are you doing this new year, 2023? Well, I'm doing pretty well so far. Uh, you know, it was interesting. I thought that the break was kind of dragging and going slowly. Then all of a sudden it wasn't, and it was fast. And here we are on the other side of the new year. And so I never really did. I can't say that I really started a new resolution or anything like that. And so I don't know if that's the right thing or the wrong thing. I think most resolutions fail. But how about you? Do you have any New Year's resolutions? You know, I was just thinking about that the other day, and I am not a resolution setter, but what I do do is I take a look back at my previous year and some of the things that didn't go so well or that I didn't do the way that I wanted to, and I at least try and develop a a plan or recognize that and try and improve on that moving forward. So it's not really, okay, it's New Year's, it's this, but I use that time to kind of set myself up for the upcoming year and be um, more successful, more efficient, um, and just hopefully a better person at the end of the day. So it sounds like a resolution, but I guess it's not, I'm putting the rubber stamp on it that, okay, my new year's resolution is X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I think we're very similar in that regard. I, I do like to, you know, that's a good time to clean the office up and do any reorganizing, set the stage for a new year, that kind of a thing. I do like the fresh start idea of it. And then more generally, as you said, I I say, you know, I could do this a little bit more, a little bit better, but I don't make it a goal, like a specific goal that's measurable necessarily. So I think it's just being thoughtful of things that you may want to improve upon or do differently in the coming year. So uh, if you're listening to this, if you have a resolution, good luck with that. Hopefully it has something to do with the outdoors. Uh, And obviously we can always strive to all be kind and be better people. So that's, that's a never ending. Hey, our show sponsor today, Matthews Archery. They recently introduced their new phase four bow toward the end of last year. I'm sure you've seen uh, some of the highlights of that, but they uh, describe it as the most silent and stealthy hunting system to date. Uh, They have it in 29 inch and 33 inch. I have ordered one of these. I may have mentioned that on a previous show and I got to handle one. I was in Delaware hunting, which we'll talk about later, but I stopped over at Kelly's Outdoors in Millsboro, Delaware, and he is a Matthews dealer and has the 29 inch bow that I ordered. So I got to handle it a little bit and I got to tell you, I, I cannot wait to get that in my hands. Now, one of the unique things about this bow is it actually has four limbs on top and bottom. So I guess a total of eight limbs. Uh, so use your imagination there. They also have the bridge lock stabilizer system. 
And when you do order one, you can get them fully customized all the way down to the color of your strings, to the sights and rest, and it's just a pretty cool process. But go check this thing out. The best thing to do instead of listening to me ramble, go to matthewsinc.com. It's just uh, M-A-T-H-E-W-S-I-N-C, not two T's like a lot of people like to do. So matthewsinc.com. As I mentioned, this is an Ask NDA Anything episode. And we got some good ones, Mike. They're, they're making us think a little bit here. And so let's start off with the, with the tougher one, okay. uh, the more scientific one. And so this is from Brian in Nebraska. And so I'm going to go ahead and bring up uh, Brian's uh, email here. And this is a good one. He says, I got a question for you, for you guys on the podcast, or I'm just interested in what you've observed or studied regarding antlers finishing during drought. During our eight antler metric study at, at a deer check, uh, excuse me, the, at a deer check, we observed that during the extreme drought of 2012, a large number of males had blunt, jagged, or unfinished antler tips. Looked like all the tips of some of the individuals were, were drug uh, across the cement. So that gives you a good visual. Appreciate that. Have you seen research or observed this? Does drought impact antler integrity or finishing? And so I do want to mention that Brian also um, is uh, he is at the University of Nebraska uh, Kearney doing in the Department of Biology there doing some research. So uh, he's a coordinator there uh, in the biology online program. So thank you, Brian. Good to hear from you. And yeah, I hope to see you at the Southeast Deer Study Group, where it sounds like uh, where you're where you're hoping to get to anyway. Be good to see you there. All right, Mike. So let's get into this. And so I did email Brian back and I gave him a short response. I said, the short answer is yes. Drought, based on research, can impact antler development. And there's some interesting research out of Texas. The best thing to do is if you just go search impact of drought on antler development, you're going to find some stuff. But uh, incidentally, our own Matt Ross happened to be interviewed about this topic in a Newsweek article. Now, Newsweek is typically not where you go to get all your latest good deer research, but every once in a while, they'll pick something up. And there's also a good quote in here from Bronson Strickland, who's a professor of wildlife management and extension wildlife specialist at Mississippi State. And Bronson's a, a good friend of ours. So, uh, so I'll just read that because I think this sums up what the answer is. And uh, so... Uh, the quote is, we've actually documented annual changes in buck antler size related to drought and heat. Uh, this is from Bronson Strickland. Uh, and he said, we documented that there can be a lag time of a year or two, meaning environmental conditions experienced by the mother while pregnant or during the buck fawn's first year of life can influence antler size a year or two later. So that's very interesting. So you might have a fawn that was a button buck the first year. They may carry that struggle, that initial struggle for several years into their lifetime. So that may be one of the reasons why you see a four-year-old and you say, well, man, why is that four-year-old still not look more, look stronger than a three-year-old? That could be the reason. Uh, and then Matt Ross, uh, our conservation director here, he said that, uh, uh, he said that uh, Forbes provide nutrition, energy, and minerals well above what they need for body maintenance. So as long as deer have access to flush, a flush of Forbes when they need them, it'll be a good antler year. So his point is, if there's not enough good quality vegetation at the right times of these deer's life cycle, then that's going to have an impact. And so that's the longer answer of your question. 
Mike, is that anything you ever really thought about? Oh, it is because as you well know, I deal with drought a lot in the 10 years that I've owned my place in New York. I've had drought issues with this past year, 2022 being the worst uh, five times in 10 years. So uh, we hit that July to September drought pretty historically for some strange reason in our place. Well, definitely a interesting question. And actually what, what I've decided now, Mike, is that the last couple of deer I shot, they were actually seven-year-olds that they just, you know, they had a couple of drought years. And so they see, they looked smaller than what they should have been. You going to buy that one? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, someone undoubtedly. But, but I will tell you, but not to interrupt you, but I will tell yeah. you that uh, buck that you, one of your neighbors shot that you sent me a picture of, and you had a live picture of it from your place earlier in the year. I completely mis misread that deer based on his body and his rack size. Yeah. I mean, it's, and of course, aging deer on the hoof isn't an exact science, but you can get pretty close. Oh, I was way off though. I mean, yeah. I, I had him pegged as an 18 month old and I think, would, what did you think he was three and a half or something? Like I, that I said that he, yeah, he could possibly have been a three and a half, but he definitely was at least a two and a half. Yeah. He was, he was a tough one. Yep. He was a tough one. And of course we're in the mountains too. So we don't have all that lush, lush vegetation to begin with. All right. So anyway, great question. Let's get on to the next one. Mike, you're going to answer this one first. I think it's right up your alley. This comes from Sean and Sean is writing to us from Massachusetts. I'm not sure we've had a question from Massachusetts yet. So good to hear from you. So he says, how do you choose a specific hunting location based on the time of year? Meaning during the early season and pre-rut, what do you look for versus during the peak rut versus during post-rut and late season? So he's covering the whole gamut. So Mike, is the stand wow. that you're setting to hunt opening day, is that likely the same stand you're going to be in on November 10th? No, no. So the way that I break this down is early season, me personally, this is just my personal opinion, I'm hunting that bed to feed pattern. I, I usually hunt in the evenings because uh, historically I cannot, sometimes different, uh, my place in New York, I can, but I usually in most cases can't beat deer back to their beds. So I don't hunt in the morning. In the evening, I actually hunt uh, that bed to feed pattern and specifically where I'm not a field edge hunter just because the places that you and I, Nick, you and I both hunt were their small properties. So I personally try to keep whatever food source they're coming to pristine. I try not to shoot deer over uh, a food plot. I try and intercept them or cut them off on the way to the food plot in the woods. I've found that what that does is even if you um, maybe get picked off during uh, during a hunt, deer tend to just shift the path they pay, take a little bit better versus not showing up to the food plot at all during daylight. So um, early season, it's bed to feed. I cut them off on their way there too, where I have maybe a wind advantage, a terrain advantage, uh, an easier entrance or exit route. My rut hunting strategies are specifically, I hunt areas, what I call of highest confidence, where you're going to catch bucks cruising. So basically you're looking at terrain features. Let me just pick out one. Sorry for this getting a little bit long, but um, the we hunt a lot in hill country or mountains and water will over 
centuries will create these cuts in the hill. So if you think about a, if you mounted up a hill and then all of a sudden you take the side of your hand and actually run a groove in that mound that you made, water does the exact same thing. Well, at the head of those where they just begin, it's the easiest place for deer to cross. So that concentrates deer into a very tight location that you can actually set up for wind and hunt and get a shot with a bow. So those, the head of those hollows or those cuts is where I like to set up to hunt. Um, if you can get a saddle mixed in with that, you're getting an additional terrain feature, which is a bonus. So um, another place is thick cover. If you can add thick cover into one of those terrain features, all the better. Uh, but anywhere where you're going to get bucks going from a, a doe bedding area to a doe bedding area where the terrain funnels them down, um, you're, you're going to probably have a pretty good hunt. Late season, I go back to my early season techniques and hunt the the bed to feed pattern. I never hunt in the morning because in late season, they're definitely going to beat you back to the bed. I've never had luck in the morning in late season, but Nick, you have in the swamp. So um, those locations, you're looking for trails, whether it be in the snow, uh, you're going to try and find where they are, set up for the correct wind and hunt those. Um, if you... I start off gentle in regards to not pushing in too close to that bedding area because either the snow might be crunchy or they're so more, much more sensitive that um, I stay back first. And if I just see them off in the distance as it's as I'm losing shooting light, I know I might need to move another hundred yards or so. So I just kind of uh, do that in stages. And that's actually how I killed my deer on the 29th here. I actually, it was a two night hunt, picked my first spot. I was close shifted, moved uh, the second night and I killed the second night. So that's how I break it down uh, over my season. Sorry for the long answer. Nope. That's good because that's the less that I have to say. So uh, I'll just add on a very basic level. Yeah. I mean, I, I have different stands for different times on, on my own place. I'll use the example. Uh, I have six, I think, yeah, six or seven fixed position tree stands. And I only hunted three of those this year and for different reasons but a couple of those were specifically set up for the rut i'll use the rut as an example because they are on pinch point travel corridors and they're just not going to be as effective other times during the season whereas others early season or late season i have some that are i will hunt a food plot i don't i try not to overhunt them because yeah as the doctor said that can cause your deer to not show up there till late but i tend to focus on those in early and late season so yeah they're not all stands are not created equal Although there are some spots, Mike, we didn't even get into this. We used to talk about uh, are the places we hunted having a, quote, killing tree, which is a spot that just it didn't seem like it mattered what time of year it was. It was always a good spot. And so I believe that just about every property has one of those as well. So, again, great question. Thank you, Sean. We appreciate it. Hope that helps you out. And maybe you're still trying to fill a tag here uh, early in 2023. All right. With that, we got to give away a hat. What do you think, Mike? You going Sean, you going Brian on this one? This is a tough one. Could go either way. Yeah, it could go either way. Um, I guess what I'm feeling is Brian, because Brian sent us to the literature. He made us really work for this one. Um, Sean, I appreciate his question uh, in regards to stand location as it uh, progresses throughout the season. But I think for the amount of work that we had to put in, uh, I, Brian gets my vote. <laughs> All right. Well, Brian, if you do happen to let me know, send me your address. But if you happen to be going to the Southeast Deer Study Group too, I'll try to remember to actually just bring you a hat 
and see in Louisiana. But either way, Sean, don't be a stranger. That's a great question. Get back to us. Uh, by the way, the multiple entries on the Ask NDA Anything ups your odds of winning a prize. And we haven't given away that truck yet. So, you know, that's 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 still out there sitting somewhere. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into the interview. We're bringing in Josh Wilson, Peter Churchborn. We're going to talk venison donation and why that is so important and something that all of us should do. my pleasure to welcome to the show today Josh Wilson. He's the Executive Director of Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry and also uh, Peter Churchborn. He's the Director of the NRA Hunters Leadership Forum. And I got to say out of the gate, we're breaking new ground here, Mike. I don't know that we've ever had uh, two guests on at the same time, have we? We have, we have not. So this is a first. So big show for us today. Yeah, go easy on us, guys. We, we appreciate it. <laughs> uh, now, we do appreciate you being on here to talk about what is a very important subject and um, one that I personally participate in, as well as the doctor there, and it's the importance of giving back. So we're going to get into the details of all of that. Before we do, though, I want uh, each of you, if you don't mind, just to tell us a little bit about yourselves. Josh, why don't you go first? Yeah, sure. So I'm Josh Wilson, the uh, executive director of Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry, uh, organization that my dad started about 25 years ago. And so over those years, we've we've seen a lot and experienced a lot in this realm of venison donation, helping hunters feed the hungry of their communities. And so we're just excited to be able to share some of that experience and see where we can take things in the future, uh, both with our own organization and, and with some of the other venison donation programs around the country. Where do you live, Josh? I am in Hagerstown, Maryland right now. So we're in Western Maryland. A lot of people, when they find that out, are kind of puzzled because they think of other hunting states when it comes to hunting organizations. So for a group that's been around 25 years and working in so many places, they're kind of puzzled when I say Maryland, but Maryland's a beautiful state. We have everything from the uh, the waters of the ocean in the Chesapeake Bay to the higher country in Western Maryland, the rugged uh, Appalachians and the farmland in between. So it's a great hunting state, great place to uh, to live and work and have a family. Yeah, not to get off topic, but you know we don't want to tell too many people about the great deer hunting that is in Maryland and it slides under the radar screen. <laughs> That's right. Not not being a huge state, it kind of slides under the radar screen because of the number of like Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett entries, but pound per pound, it's right up there. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, how about you, Peter? Good morning. I'm Peter Churchborn. I'm with the National Rifle Association. Currently, I am the director of the Hunters Leadership Forum. Um, I've been with the NRA for uh, going on my eighth year uh, in January. Uh, prior to that, I worked for Ducks Unlimited for almost 18 years in various roles around the United States. Um, uh, I do uh, a bunch of stuff for the NRA before the current role I have now. I was the director of the Hunter Services Department, which is in our general operations side of the organization, which is the program outreach. And one of the programs that I used to manage when I was over there was the Hunters for the Hungry program that the NRA participates in. Thanks for having us this morning. Oh, we're happy to have you. And where, where are you living, Peter? I live in Fredericksburg, Virginia, um, which is about uh, 65 miles outside Washington, D.C. 
And so are you still, I see you have a swan decoy there in your window. Do you, are you still an avid waterfowler? That's probably my favorite thing to chase. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I am, I just got off a road trip. I just flew in from Reno late last night. Um, I'm a little groggy, a little, little, uh, uh I don't think I got in about 2 AM last night, but yeah, our uh, waterfowl season is in full swing right now. And if it wasn't for the sleep gross we have outside, we start tomorrow, we'll hit it pretty hard for the next five days. Yeah. Well, hey, good on you for being here early in the morning. Uh, you should have never agreed to this. So we'll take it easy. <laughs> we'll take it easy on you. But being a being a duck hunter, you know all about getting up early and getting out there. And uh, you also you're obviously very tough and driven because you're hunting the Atlantic Flyway, which is one of the toughest. Uh, it you, is. you put a lot of effort in for the small reward you might get. But good luck to you out there tomorrow. Absolutely. You're right about that. <laughs> Well, we appreciate it again, you guys. And so why don't we just start with this? Uh, Josh, not everyone may be aware of your organization in particular. So tell us a little bit about the history. You mentioned that your dad started it and you're carrying that on, but just sort of the history of the program and uh, how we got to where we are today. Yeah, sure thing. So like I, I guess I had mentioned already about 25 years ago, uh, my dad was uh, on his way to the farm where we would hunt in Virginia. Uh, as Peter mentioned, he's in Virginia. And um, that morning, I believe they were headed to a birthday party for the landowner. And along the road, he happened upon a woman that had stopped and her car was pulled over and uh, it looked like she might need help. And so to me, this is kind of the first point in the story where something different was happening uh, because growing up I don't remember us stopping too often to help people mom and dad were <laughs> cautious people and uh, had a healthy skepticism of, of what others might be looking to do to you and that kind of thing and so the fact that he stopped tells us something was up and he did and asked if she needed help and she said uh, well, no, I'm fine. Everything's good here. But uh, if you could come over and help me along the roadside, that'd be great. And he said, well, that's a little odd. So he was cautious again, but noticed that there was a, a small buck laying kind of in the weeds along the side of the road that looked like it had been hit by a car. And so he thought she hit it. And so he goes through the whole round of, is your car okay? Are you okay? And she explains, no, no, it's not. I didn't hit the deer. I just saw it laying here and I need to load it up and take it home to feed my kids. And uh, so he went through a bunch of stuff about, well, we should get it tagged or, you know, you can't just take the deer because back in those days, you know, things were more strict as far as even roadkill and what you could do with it. And um, she said, I don't have time for all this. Are you going to help me or not? And so he, <laughs> he realized, OK, I'm, I'm talking too much. This isn't a huge thing. I just need to help her. So they loaded the deer up. She thanked him and drove off. And um, he was just puzzled. Like, what happened here? And realized as he stood there, the words from the Bible where Jesus said, when you help the least of these, you've done it to me, just kind of rang in his mind. And he realized something strange about this. Okay. Uh, so he took that story with him onto the farm. They had the birthday party. He explained what had happened. And he remembered that the landowner, who was a Virginia delegate at the time, looked him square in the eyes and say, well, Wilson, do you have a name, a phone number? Is there some way we can help her? further and he says well no it all happened so fast and he said they, they looked at him and said Wilson you failed <laughs> so he's just left to wonder what does this all mean 
And uh, so he took it home with him. He shared it with mom. He shared it with others. And he just was agonizing over the fact that he couldn't do anything more to help this woman. Uh, next morning in, in church, he said that the, uh, the scripture passage that was read and that the pastor preached on was towards the end of the Gospels where Jesus is talking to Peter and implores him several times, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And so in this two-day span, he's, he's hit with all this. They go to lunch, and he's still worried about it. And my mom says, Rick, you just have to let this go. You did what you could do. You, you helped her. And he said, well, there's got to be something more. You know, I, there's a program in Virginia called Hunters for the Hungry. And on the farm, we're able to donate deer uh, that are harvested and, and help feed the, the community around the area. There's sort of a program here in Maryland, but it's kind of faded. Maybe we need to restart that. So sure enough, at lunch that day, one of our local butchers was in the same restaurant. And so he relayed the whole story to him. Uh, Greg Ernst is his name. And he said, you know, Greg, I feel like we should start something here just in our county and do it like they do in Virginia, where you, you know, raise money so we can pay the butcher bill. The hunter doesn't have to pay any of the fee. Uh, the food banks can get the meat and they don't have to donate any money or anything for it. And Greg said, when do we start? I'm in. And he said, okay, and went uh, a couple days later, he talked to the other main butcher here in the county, and um, he said he was in too, and, and would actually only charge him half price for each deer donated, because he said if he charged a penny more, he'd feel like he was taking it from the Lord. And so that's basically how it got started. Uh, that county, our county here in Maryland, and uh, they had a good first season. Uh, the next year, Maryland DNR contacted him because they'd seen a news article where his program, our, the new program here in our county, had as many deer donated as the older program that they were maintaining had donated across the entire rest of the state. So they were puzzled by this and called him up to a meeting and he explained uh, how it worked and that they were trying to raise money to pay all the bills instead of kind of the copay program that the older program had. And uh, he said, also, we're, we're a faith-based ministry. We ask the Lord to help us, and we trust that he'll, he'll bless and move this forward. Uh, he thought that was his ticket out of there without any further obligation, but was surprised to find that they liked the concept. They, they liked what he was sharing and, and uh, who, who he was and just his background as a, a teacher and a lifelong hunter here in this county. And uh, so they asked him just to roll what the state had been doing into his new program and, and take over Maryland. So uh, kind of reluctantly they did, but again, they, they trusted that God would, would lead. And the, uh, the next year went very well here in Maryland. And then from there, it just attracted some attention in other states. Uh, Dad had a long history in archery, uh, bow hunting and competitive archery. So he had industry contacts that led to uh, articles in publications. It led to an episode on uh, Mossy Oaks hunting the country way back then, and just attracted a lot of attention uh, from people just like him in other states that thought maybe they could start something similar. Uh, so he would, uh, we would talk with them and, and see what we could do. And that's basically how it went. We would give credit back to Hunters for the Hungry in Virginia. And the director of that program at the time, David Horn, would always say, no, it wasn't my idea. I learned about it from a program in Texas. I read a news article and they have a Hunters for the Hungry down in Texas. So obviously the concept's been around, I think, back in the 80s, probably. It was more of a grassroots thing. I believe Safari Club and even NRA encouraged their members to 
find ways to donate deer in the community, maybe have it processed themselves and then donate part of it to a food pantry. Um, and then towards the late 80s, from the best I can tell, and, and into the 90s is when you started to see uh, separate organizations kind of crop up, like the program in Texas and the one in Virginia and then us in Maryland, uh, dedicated to organizing all of it, getting the butchers on board, getting the food pantries networked in, raising money to pay the bills and so forth. And so now here we are uh, 25 years later, and we're one of really many organizations across the country that do this work. Well, that's an awesome story. I, <laughs> I mean, it's just, and here we are now, and so to hear how it all got started by a chance meeting along the side of the road, that's pretty awesome. So thank you for sharing that. Now, Peter, you got to somehow back that up and tell us about, <laughs> uh, about your work at the Hunter Leadership Forum there at NRA. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, we have been involved, the NRA has been involved um, with the Hunters for the Hungry program for a long time in an advocacy role, um, making sure that our members, you know, right now, I think the American Hunter magazine is up to almost a million subscriptions a month. So people get that magazine every month and there's a way bigger digital uh, uh, footprint for that. So the best way that we help at the NRA and have for a long time is getting the word out of the great work that all these independent groups like farmers and hunters feeding the hungry do uh, across the United States. Um, so back in the mid eighties, I think is long before I was at the NRA, but we had tried to pull to mass together all of the information that we could you know these are the days before a lot of these independent groups had communication strategies uh websites um and we had a website where we did the best we could to try to uh, disseminate the information for the local independent state organizations um you know, there, many of them are are have very little budgets they turn it all around to make sure that they're using it to process deer and get the food into the hands that people that need it. They're, you know, volunteer driven. There's no staff. So they were trying to do the best they could with the little money they had. So we thought we could help by getting that information out there. So we have had a website for a long time where we will put all their information. Now we're in the modern world where all these groups can do websites themselves. Um, and we, like what Josh's organization does, also link that information so that if hunters are traveling, which many of us do these days, and they're looking for a place to donate meat in Wyoming or Montana, um, they can go to our website or Josh's website or just Google Hunters for the Hungry. And they often come back to our website where it will be a link where they can go. Um, and then within the past couple of years, the little group that I manage within the organization called the Hunters Leadership Forum, which is a, we had uh, started in 2015. We had a bunch of dedicated, like-minded individuals that wanted to donate some money to start a dedicated fund so that that money would just be used for NRA hunting initiatives. Um, we get, there's other dollars that are generated at the NRA for our general operations hunter programs, but HLF is a little bit different where we can uh, do some research and do non-traditional support for the hunting industry. Um, and so for the past couple of years, we have set aside 
uh, $60,000, where we will give subsidiaries to these groups that need money. So they get a very easy six-question application where they uh, can get up to 1500 bucks a piece. And we've depleted that fund every year, so I see it going higher next year. Um, and then we've been amassing the information that we can get from the local organizations. And then also prior to COVID, um, when we had a, more staff, we were also contacting all those in, individual organizations and we'd get the roll-up numbers of the amount of dollars that they received, how much meat that they had donated, and then how many individual portions of protein that gave to uh, individual meals. That, that's kind of been our involvement. And, and then Josh and I, for the past couple of years, COVID put a, put, a, put a damper on some of our plans, but we're ramping that up quickly to try to add more to the industry, more money, more advocacy, more support, and a lot more um, attention on the great work that these independent local groups do. I mean, they're out there working extremely hard um, trying to raise money and awareness for this very important program. So both Peter and Josh, you've talked about the the programs themselves, which are very, very useful. But as a teacher, and Josh, your dad would probably also know this, is you, you have to, I think, kind of get the attention of the room. So let's do that. So which one of you or either both of you are comfortable talking about food insecurity and maybe some numbers that's attached by this because hunters can hear this and say that, that there's these great programs out there but for my students i always like to let them know you know the the problem the the actual the origin of this issue was which is what josh was talking about with his dad's story but food insecurity is something that i think we should at least touch on and then continue to this conversation so if any of you have some statistics or uh, some information about that, I think this would be a great time to share that. Yeah, sure, I can speak to that. Um, you know, I think all of us are aware that that economically we're in a, a tough time right now with seeing inflation numbers month after month that are anywhere from seven to 10 or 11% higher than the year before. Um, and yeah, there's certainly all kinds of statistics. I mean, the experts on that kind of stuff are actually the food bank networks like Feeding America. People can go online and check out Feeding America and get actually down to the county statistics about hunger and food insecurity in their county. Uh, I can share a couple of personal stories that have been relayed to me uh, that kind of illustrate what's going on right now. Um, I know one of our coordinators uh, had found that right around Thanksgiving that the local food pantry was completely out of meat. And so they, they went and actually that, this, that particular program or, or area of ours doesn't have a, a butcher participating at the moment. And that's another whole challenge right now with the organizations like ours is uh, recruiting butchers. You know, butchers are aging out in some cases. COVID has caused them to shift over almost completely to livestock in some cases because the business was booming so much. And so, but that aside, this particular program chapter found, hey, food pantry's out of meat, but we have some money, what can we do? And so they went and bought ham and turkeys and filled up the, uh, the carts for the food pantry, even, even in a time when they couldn't access hunter donations right away. Um, another story was relayed to me, the, uh, the volunteer coordinator we have, our future daughter-in-law works for a credit union and said that uh, you wouldn't believe 
how many people are coming in to get loans to put gas in the car, uh, to get loans to buy the food that they need or to get the prescription drugs and medications that the family needs. Uh, so not loans to buy a car or, or buy a house or a residence, but loans to, to cover everyday needs and expenses. So the, the need is, is kind of off the charts right now. And I guess, depending on which economists you, you follow, it could get worse before it gets better. And as we know, uh, meat is often one of the most expensive items for food banks, food pantries to secure. Um, you know, we used to look at it and, and wonder, hey, is there going to come a time with the, the rising costs of butchering deer, which still average about $65 each for us uh, to process a deer um, in most places? Is there going to come a time where that costs more than getting ground beef at the grocery store? And people will question, well, why do we even need Hunters for the Hungry program? We could just turn that money over and get, get beef. Uh, right now, that's not the case because, you know, any of us can go to the local supermarket and see that it's four and five dollars just for a pound of ground beef. And that's not the good stuff in the meat counter. That's like the plastic tubes. So, yeah, the need is great and the, the challenge is there. Um, statistically, yeah, it's just off the charts. I could even look some of that up if you want. But like I say, Feeding America uh, USDA often has good statistics on hunger and food insecurity, and uh, it's it's pretty high right now. Well, I guess for me, I just wanted to make a point in the sense that most people that are listening to this podcast, and some of them may have experienced food insecurity at some point in their life, as I had uh, when I was younger. So um, it's 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 your neighbors. It's the people down the street. It's someone. It's not always right. um, potentially the person that's panhandling or someone that might be living under a bridge. I'm not saying that cavalierly. I'm just saying that in a very factual way. But yep. I think if people knew what food insecurity is and the people that it's, that it affects, they'd be surprised. And that's what I really, really wanted to make sure, sure. everybody understood sure. before we went forward. Yeah, in a real basic sense. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the Feeding America site right now. Uh, and they had a stat that last year, 53 million people had to turn to food banks and community programs to help put enough food on the table uh, in the wake of the COVID pandemic. And so you're absolutely right. I think in our minds, we, we are picturing the person uh, along the side of the road out, out in front of the store with, with the sign. And that's certainly uh, a problem and folks are struggling in that way. But there's a really a much, probably a much larger segment of people. It's almost like a silent epidemic or problem where you're talking people that have a job, sometimes two and three jobs, but with inflation and, and the, the supply chain issues from a couple of years ago, just the ability to put enough food on the table uh, is impacted. Uh, it reminds me of a, this story is from, from years ago, but it's applicable, I think, right now. School principal uh, told us that student in the lunchroom was uh, just making a mess, eating like crazy when the food came around and he tried to stop him several times, said, you can't do this. It's getting all over you, the food, you're eating like a pig. Uh, and then he came back around, still happening. So he said, all right, go to the office. We'll talk after the lunch shift. Gets to the office after the lunch shift and says, hey, uh, we'll say Tommy. I don't remember the name, doesn't matter. Uh, Tommy, what's going on? You can't eat like this. You know, behavior's a problem. He says, well, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm really hungry. And he said, well, Tommy, I'm, I, that's not a good enough reason. I'm hungry too. I have to watch all three lunch shifts before I get to sit down to my lunch. And he said, well, I don't know what to tell you, sir, uh, other than last night wasn't my turn to eat. And that right then and there changed the whole 
discussion. It wasn't a behavior issue. It was an issue of need in the family. So we've got families, like you said, right in our own neighborhoods and communities uh, that aren't out of a home. They're not out on the street begging for food, but they're having to ration. They're having to take turns uh, with who eats and how much they can eat on a given mealtime. So those are the, the folks that we, we aim to help as well. Yeah, when I hear things like people getting loans for gas and food and I mean that this just all of these stories just sort of bring tears to your eyes because you you know it's it, we we know these things are going on but we don't think about it we compartmentalize and maybe don't want to think about it because it's tough to think about. And so uh you know thank goodness for programs like this and I want to talk about your program too just the impact that you've had. You have some numbers on your website encourage people to go to feedingthehungry.org you can see some of the impressive numbers there but uh, Josh, if you would just tell us a little bit about what the impact of farmers and hunting or hunters feeding the hungry has been. Sure. Yeah. So basically, each deer that's donated uh, is going to yield somewhere around forty pounds, sometimes more. Uh, and if you turn that into quarter pound servings in spaghetti and tacos and sloppy Joe sandwiches, that's that's one hundred forty servings of meat coming from each deer. And so over the 25 years that we've been at it, uh, you know, when we calculate based on the deer numbers that have been donated and processed and paid for through our program, we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 million servings at this point that have been donated and uh, sent on through to the food banks and the ministries. And, and really, we're just one piece of the puzzle, because uh, when you look at some statistics, I think the uh, NSSF put some stuff out a couple years ago, it might have been four or five years ago now, maybe longer, but I remember a chart, and it was uh, talking about the biggest donation states and how many, you know, deer are donated out of each state and so forth, and but one thing that stuck out to me in that is that at the time, that particular year that they had compiled the numbers, hunters across the country had donated like 11 million servings of meat. Uh, just in that one year alone. So, you know, you think about 20, 30 years of these kinds of programs and averaging maybe 11 million meals per year, that's hundreds of millions of servings coming just from hunters uh, to the, the needy of their communities. And I think that's a story that, uh, number one, a lot of hunters don't realize, but even more so, a lot of people in the general public don't realize. I mean, this is a tremendous service that hunters can do and are doing uh, and people need to to hear about because it's just a win-win all the way around. And really, Peter, when I hear all this, this sounds like what a lot of the information you're trying to put out to your vast uh, readership and membership, uh, the, just the what the impact of these programs are. Exactly right. I mean, we we it it's, does such a great thing for America, and it also is a great PR opportunity for hunters to talk about to non-hunters. Um, HLF just did a bunch of research uh, in the past five years, and we put a book out called How to Talk About Hunting, which it's uh, the largest and only of its kind research ever done on American attitudes towards hunting and the animal rights movement, a bunch of focus groups, I mean, real deal in-person research um, on what non-hunters think about hunters. And that's important in today's 
in today's world because hunters represent about 4% of the United States population. So, uh, and I've done a bunch of talks and speeches about this, but our hands are, the future of hunters' ability to hunt in this country lies in the hands of non-hunters. So it's very important for what they think about us. And our research proved that 79% of non-hunters in America support hunting when given the facts. And one of the one top thing that non-hunters will support us when they hear that we use the food because there's so many misinformation that's put out there that we're all trophy hunters and we don't eat what we shoot. But when they learn that we eat it and then we feed those in need, that support goes almost 100% when they learn that. So this is an extremely important topic that we need to share with non-hunters is that of, of how much um, what I love to call a renewable resource um, is used in this country. We're not using any farming land to uh, actually to take anything out of of production. This is a, a naturally occurring renewable resource that we can use in this country uh, for all the statistics that Josh just said of how many millions of pounds, it's something like 2.1 million pounds a year um, to feed ourselves, our families, um, and those in need. So what we like to do at the NRA is, is advocate for that. So to tell hunters that we had a program a couple of years ago we called Burn a Tag. Um, so, you know, not everybody in the United States has extra tags. Um, you know, our, our Western states, it's hard now to pull a tag, but some of us in Southern states and East Coast states, we have a plethora of opportunities. Um, so we were advocating for people, hey, just spend a little more time before you go out, find your local Hunters for the Hungry butcher, make sure that they're processing deer and they have room. And then when you're out, harvest a doe and take the time and take it in because you can make a big difference in someone's life by just doing a little bit of work. Um, so that's what we, and, and if there's time right now before we go in this holiday season, we ask that go find your local Hunters for the Hungry group in your state and make a donation, five bucks, 10 bucks. Um, and then also if you're out and you got extra time, harvest an animal and bring it in there because it makes a big difference. Yeah, well said. And Josh, uh, hearing all that, just take us through how this works. If someone listening to this maybe would like to donate a deer, but they never have before. So, uh, you know, put, uh, help that person find you or a program to make this happen sure thing so yeah a hunter that wants to donate uh you know it has to be a legally harvested animal it's been uh checked in properly in the state field dressed and then we we ask and and all of the programs like us ask that they as quickly as possible transport that deer to a participating butcher shop for donation uh, now, we list the butchers that participate directly with our program on our website at feedingthehungry.org. And uh, on that same map, we now also list all of the other organizations that we're aware of. So if someone, for instance, in uh, we'll just pick the state of Virginia, puts in their location on the map, they're not going to see butchers with FHFH, but they will see a pin in the center of the state and on the list to the side that says Virginia Hunters for the Hungry. 
and identifies that as a separate organization with similar goals, does the same work, here's their website address. And they click on that, takes them right over to their site, they can find their butchers. So once a hunter's found a butcher participating with us or with one of the other programs, uh, really it's as simple as taking it uh, to the location and saying that they wanna donate it to the, the venison program. And in most cases, there will probably be either a card or a list where they put their name and tag number, kind of like a check-in or a login sheet that gives the butcher a record of that donation so that they can then turn around and bill the organization that's handling the donations in their area uh, for that deer. They will process the meat. Uh, when it's ready, they'll usually, uh, you know, kind of a batch at a time, five deer, 10 deer, uh, 20 deer, whatever their freezer space is like. Once they have that batch ready, They'll have a call list of food banks and soup kitchens in the area that they've been connected with. The butcher calls them up, they pick it up and use it in their, their feeding programs. It's as simple as that. So the hunter takes the deer in, donates it. Uh, the butcher processes it, calls the food pantry. They pick it up, take care of distributing it as needed to those uh, in the community through their programs. Uh, the bill comes to us or to one of the other venison donation program. So the hunter doesn't pay, the, the, the food bank doesn't have to donate anything money-wise. Uh, there may be some exceptions to that. I believe there are some programs in the state that may have still like a copay where the, the hunter pays a little bit of the bill, um, where there might be a late season situation where, as Peter mentioned, all of the organizations struggle, many of them struggle to raise enough funds to pay for all the deer that could be donated over the course of a season in their state. So there might be that situation late season where, uh, say, the butcher's been allocated 75 deer for the season that the organization could pay to have processed, and they've reached that. And so the hunter might uh, encounter a time where to donate either all or part of the deer, they may, may have to pay that bill or make that decision. But our goal is to, to minimize those situations as much as we can. And uh, that's really part of what uh, Peter and I are hoping to work on in the, in the new year and beyond is uh, the advocacy and educational work so we can encourage more hunters to be aware of the programs that they can participate to and to actually uh, participate by donating deer and make the public more aware of the programs and the good work that the hunters are doing and hopefully engage their support on the financial side, even people that don't hunt. We get a lot of donations financially from people that don't hunt and they'll, they'll write a note say, I know great uncle Charlie used to hunt and, and he would be so happy to see this program. I know he would donate his deer. I don't hunt, but here's a hundred bucks to help process a deer or something like that. Um, so that, you know, that side of it. And, and then hopefully we, we have thoughts that maybe we could even better engage the industry and all the different companies and organizations that up to this point uh, maybe have looked at venison donation as sort of a uh, uh, haphazard, not uh, you know, fragmented grouping of programs. You know, you think of a national company that would like to get behind venison donation, but doesn't have uh, one place they could go or one thing they could give to, to feel like they're really supporting it nationwide. And so hopefully we can, we can start to bring some of that together, uh, maybe put a campaign together that, that all the groups and organizations could be part of and know that when they support this campaign, uh, funds are gonna flow to all of the organizations and some of the money will be used to advocate for all of the organizations. Uh, I don't know that we need to set up like a brand new association just for venison donation programs, but when you have groups like ours and like Peter's that already have a bit of a national vision, uh, maybe we could do it 
you know, kind of under that umbrella as a, as a new campaign. And that was really what we were looking at this fall when we, we launched what we call the Hunt Down Hunger campaign and did a couple of news releases uh, back at Thanksgiving and then here in December uh, to general media as well as some of the outdoors media. It was just to encourage awareness of the programs, hunters to participate, public to become more familiar with what the hunters are doing, uh, and maybe we can build on that in the new year. Well, I want to make a statement. Um, so we are right now wrapping up our deer report. The National Deer Association puts out a deer report that details tons of things from you know harvest data, age data, just a whole bunch of different things. We even talk about programs like this in there about the importance of donating venison. But one of the things in that report, as I was going through it yesterday, is how, with I think just one exception, just about every state's doe harvest has gone down. Not not saying you can't donate a buck here, but where I'm going with this is there are a lot of doe tags, antlerless tags going unfilled. And so we love to hunt, okay? People listening to this, I assume if you're listening to this show, you love to be out hunting. And I'm guessing that you probably end your season often with a tag not filled in your pocket. And I hear different reasons for this. I'll, I'll use my dad as an example. Dad, if you're listening, I apologize, but I'm going <laughs> to put you out there as the example. You know, we'll say something like, well, I don't need another deer. Well, you know what? Somebody else might. And I'm guilty of this too. I, now I will say, uh, yeah, I donate several deer a year. Okay. And I'm happy to do it. It makes me feel good. It's just part of the deal. But I also will tell you, that I leave a lot of unfilled tags too that I don't fill. And so I, I think that a challenge for everybody out there could be to number one, we need more antlerless deer shot, period. Okay, We're, we have overpopulation issues, uh, just a, a number of issues, habitat destruction issues. So do that service, number one. But then number two, turn that into a donation for somebody that can use it. As Josh said, 140 meals you could help put on a family's table and I, that's awesome and so that would be uh, the doctors and i challenge to you find it in yourself to go out and just try to fill that one more tag and turn that into a donation that can help somebody and uh you know mike you might want to add to that i do a little bit and with that being said i have to kind of echo what peter said is ahead of time, and this is what I do, if I'm going to a new area or a new state, I always look up that information ahead of time and have it in my hunting kit, either in my phone now, you can save that information, take a screenshot off of a computer, take a picture with your phone, and have the number right there. That makes it so much easier when as soon as that deer is on the ground and you walk up to it and you take your moment to appreciate it, you know exactly what you're doing next. And then it goes back to what Josh is saying is, that deer, the quality of the meat is never compromised because you're moving in the direction of getting it donated almost immediately. So that's a little tip that I'd have there for you. Um, but yeah, I agree. Uh, there's individuals that might not be financially able to donate money, but if you already have the tag that you've legally paid for and you have the opportunity and you want to get out either in late season or whatever it might be, it, it's actually it's, it's a win-win the way that I look at it. And with that being said, and I think I know the answer to this, but if Josh or Peter, either one of you could speak to it, 
uh, or confirm what I'm going to make the statement about here is that most states, there is a way either with your like CPA or your accountant um, where your tax person, where you should be able to claim that donation in some way, shape or form to actually, I mean, some, not that, you know, we should be talking about, oh, well, how can, you know, we get back a little bit, but sometimes that means something to people to actually uh, have something to show for it and maybe get a, a tax break. Is that a, is that a possibility or have you heard about that in other states where that can be done? Yeah, I think I'll speak for, I'll just give the disclaimer for all four of us. We're not tax professionals or tax preparation. <laughs> I uh, appreciate that, that. <laughs> <laughs> folks, but uh, we, I can say that I am aware that hunters have spoken with their CPA uh, and been able to find a way to claim some value, some in-kind value for that donation of meat. Because, uh, you know, face it, even though we can't buy and sell the, uh, the wildlife in our country, which is good, uh, there, there is an in-kind value. If you, your freezer goes out and you lose your meat and you, it's not hunting season, you're going to have to go out and buy more meat. Same thing for a food pantry. If, if they don't get it from a program like ours, they're going to have to, to buy it or get it somewhere. So there, there is a way to attach an in-kind value. Uh, it's usually a, a comparison kind of thing where if you can establish value of, of say, uh, ground beef in, in your area or something of that nature, something comparable, uh, that you can then utilize that in, in a fashion on your taxes as a deduction. So again, can't say for certain for each person's situation, but yes, uh, a lot of hunters are able to do that. There are a few states, I believe, that have codified that into their state tax code uh, legally. So, you know, in some states, it's a little more clear in that fashion, but um, yep, that, that's something to, for hunters to keep in mind and, and to share with whoever helps them with their taxes. Now, not that I wanted to bring it back to us or the hunter, because I mean, this this conversation should be actually looking forward and looking to help others. But I, I for, again, for someone like me, I'm always trying to um, minimize the the barriers or the excuses to get somebody to do something. And um, there's really a lot more reasons to do it. But if that's something that's important to you, I believe that you could pursue that avenue, at least inquire if it if it actually um is needed, you know, for your situation. But yeah. uh, all in all, I think this is just for you know helping out thy neighbor. Well, speaking of disclaimers, I want to point out that Josh had said earlier about legally harvested deer. So I want to make sure that don't go out and shoot a deer without a tag. Oh, I'm giving it to the hungry. Not that anybody would ever do that, but <laughs> right, uh, you know, just just feel the need to point that out. So, guys, we can't appreciate or we can't thank you enough. We appreciate your time here this morning peter especially going on about four hours of sleep uh so you answered yeah answered the call this morning um and so i want to just give out a little information here so to find farmers and hunters feeding the hungry i think the best place is to go to the website which is feedingthehungry.org and also for the nra hunters leadership forum it's nrahlf.org and as peter mentioned they do have specific area on their website to talk uh, about this program. So uh, with that, guys, you get the last word. Anything you want to add here before we sign off? No, I think we've covered, we've pretty much covered the whole gamut. And uh, again, if I appreciate your call to the hunters, even in late season here to, to get out and maybe get another tag or uh, filled uh, or even consider a financial contribution to the venison donation or hunters for the hungry program in their state. Um, 
we can finish the season strong and, and be in position in the new year to hit the ground running for next season. Yeah, thanks, uh, Nick and Mike, for having us, and also Josh for your leadership in this industry. Uh, uh, hunters and farmers feeding the hungry, they're the largest of the groups in the United States, and I want to thank all the volunteers that work in these much-needed uh, uh, aspect of this industry and uh, all the things that they do. It's a lot of hard work and it's, uh, it's um, all they get is uh, the thank you from us. So we really appreciate everything that they do. It's making a difference. Thank you. For me, Mike, you know, I, I always have just thought that donating venison is, is just something you should do. But it was nice to hear from the guy some of the numbers behind it. Some of the, we got into topics about hunger because I just think is a lot of people go through their day and they haven't struggled with hunger and they have no idea just how high of a percentage of the people out there are and how many meals a deer can provide. So for me, I really appreciated getting into that level of detail in the conversation. And I agree because when you talk about that, Food insecurity is not something that someone would willingly tout. It, it's actually, I mean, it has the potential for some individuals to be very embarrassing that you are not fulfilling your role as a, an individual, a parent, et cetera, and so on right down the line. And it's it's something that is the elephant in the room, but no one likes to talk about it that's experiencing it. So it's, it's a very needed process and we as hunters can really help out with that when we have tags in excess or we have a deer. And the truth, I'll even say there's been situations where I've had a hunt, I've decided to harvest a deer and the more we, I've gotten into it, whether it be like a next day track or something like that, or something came up like it did over the holidays here with me and um, my wife and I having to go and help out our, my daughter at the drop of a hat where you might not be able to deal with that deer. So um, take it and donate it, you know, not never let a deer go to waste. So if you're ever in an odd situation where you can't handle the deer yourself at that time, if you do your own butchering, take it and donate it. So there's a lot of opportunities there, but my biggest thing that I want to say, and I said it during the, the podcast was plan ahead though, plan ahead, planning ahead makes it so much easier knowing where you're going to take it, their phone number, how their drop-off process works. That makes it so much easier so that you will have a much more enjoyable process of dropping it off and donating it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I budget that right into my hunting plans for the year. Matter of fact, the last several years, the first deer that I shot was donated. I haven't even kept the first deer that I shot. And this doesn't, it doesn't have to be even through a formal program. And we talked a little bit about that in the interview. You can simply just have some venison to offer somebody. I mean, I know too, I just put two deer that I shot earlier this year in the freezer. And I had a little bit remaining from the previous year that's certainly still you know, it's shrink wrapped and frozen and still looks great. I'm going to give that to somebody who can use it. And so it doesn't even have to be through a formal donation program. So anyway, appreciate the guys coming on for the show, talking about their partnership. And I think it's a great topic. All right, Mike, it's time for the B team report. 
Well, do you want to go first this time? Because you got a pretty good story. Okay, so let's let's kind of you know rip off the band-aid. So late season hunting, I went out on the 28th and hunted a, a farm that you and I share in Pennsylvania. So I'm back home for the holiday off of work. So headed in, went to a spot that I'd never hunted before, but based on the wind direction and what we knew about deer movement there, I hunted this ahead of this little seep on the on the we call it the mountain because it's probably one of the higher elevations that we have to trudge or trudge our way up and hunt and um, went in, had a great hunt, had deer uh, very close to me that night for quite some time, but never really got a shot. And um, long story short left. But when I got home there at the time in Pennsylvania, there was still a lot of snow on the ground. It was warmer during the day. And then it almost flash froze as the sun went down and so when I set my bow on the ground, uh, lowering it from the stand, it actually froze to the snow. And so I picked it up and I had a bunch of snow on it and I brushed it off and never thought about it the best I could and then brought it home and finished letting it thaw off. And um, when I did that, I moved it uh, the next day to go and take a couple shots that morning. And I was missing one of my orbit dampeners on my bow. And I started looking around for it. I couldn't find it. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I knocked it off when I was brushing off all that snow and ice from the day before. So I immediately, instead of shooting my bow, ran out to see if I could find it while there was still snow on the ground because the temperature was rising. And I thought it'd be easier to see it when there was no snow on the ground. So I backtracked myself, my tracks in the snow, never found it. And, um, you know, called you on the way back and said, you know, I lost this, couldn't find it. And so I checked my truck, pulled everything out. So basically I have to reorder that. Uh, just to get uh, my bow back balanced. Not that it was a significant thing because I wound up killing a deer the night after that or that night anyway. So um, that was my first one. The second one happened that day that I went to look for that orbit dampener. Um, I historically put my rangefinder in my left thigh pants pocket uh, at, on the thigh pocket, not the the higher one at the hip. And you've, uh, you know, I've talked about we hunt out of a saddle and historically, for some strange reason, I'm a stander and I have these really good quality knee pads and I never, I always carry them, but I never wear them. So I just started telling myself, you carry them all the time, put them on and get yourself in the habit of wearing them. Cause you never know if you might need to take a shot with your knee up against the tree and you won't have to be uncomfortable. You can focus on the shot process itself. So I wound up putting them on and because I don't put them on much. What I forgot is I have my routine. I'd already taken my range finder out and put it in that pocket. Well, when I put the strap of the knee pad on, it had, it, what it did is it pretty much just incarcerated that <laughs> into that pocket where I couldn't get it out. And as you well know, right at uh, last light, the deer come in and usually historically I always range ahead of time, but the shot that I had because of the way the brush was, I knew everything was pretty close. Well, the deer actually hung up a little bit further and started feeding on Forbes outside of my range. But then I started looking around and I had a window, but I didn't range that window. So I reached in to try to get my um, range finder out and I am struggling and fighting. And so time's clicking away, deer are moving, that deer is in that only shooting lane. And I am forcefully trying to get my hand down inside there. I finally, luckily, get it out without making such a big commotion. I tried to keep my thigh behind the tree because the deer were off to my right. And I had the tree blocking, for the most part, most of me. 
get a range on the deer and wind up taking that deer. But uh, there was some pretty anxious moments. And for me, what I, I like to kind of pride myself in is my mental toughness and my routine. And that that hiccup might have thrown me off course. But once I had my range, what I did is I put that range finder right in my pocket and I stopped myself at that point and made myself go through my shot process from stop to start. And I executed, you know, a perfect shot and I got my late season deer. So my B team report turned into a, a win, but uh, it could have been really catastrophic. Yeah. Good recovery there. Not all B team reports have happy endings. So that's a, that's a rarity. And yeah, I mean, here, here's the reality. We've gotten back out into the deer woods a little bit. And so inevitably we have B team reports. And so I'm pretty much, have pretty much decided that every time we go, something's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I had a couple as well. First one I'll focus on didn't really impact the hunt at all, but it's just one of those things, right? So it seems to happen at least once a year. I, li I like to self-film my hunts. We use a lot of the footage here at the NDA for things. I like to, if I'm shooting in an animal and I can get that on camera, I, I use that to see where the impact was. It helps a lot with blood trailing if you get into a strange situation. Uh, but so inevitably, I had a whole bunch of deer around me the other day in Delaware, and then one kind of broke off and came by itself. And I'm like, okay, here's my opportunity. Nice adult doe. And as I'm recording the deer coming in, it steps into the opening. I make a good shot. It runs off. I realize I double punched the record button. And so I can't tell you, Mike, how many times <laughs> over the years I've done this. It's frustrating. And this was just another example of that. So there it was. That was a big B team situation. I can tell you another time I did this, this is, a, 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 I guess it had been an earlier B team report. I was hunting in Ohio and these two bucks come in and they were fighting right in front of me and decided to take their fight right out into the river. And this is a river that they can't stand and they had to swim in it. And they were actually fighting while swimming. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And I, I got all this great footage. I didn't get any of it. Yeah. yeah. So that one hurt a little bit. And then the other one quickly is, <laughs> I found this beautiful tree I wanted to climb in. And as you know, with a saddle, it's nice. You can get into any tree, but some trees present more challenges than others, especially if you've got um, limbs coming out and you've got to navigate around them and keep yourself connected and all these things. And so I found this beautiful holly tree, which holly trees are great for cover, especially in the late season when you don't have much. And I couldn't decide when I was going to climb. And those of you who do use a climbing uh, hang and hunt system, whether it be a, a uh, saddle or a hang in a stand can appreciate this. I couldn't decide if it was a three stick climb or a four stick climb. <laughs> and so I decided it was a three stick climb. And of course I get up there and it's not, it's a four stick climb and I'm not high enough. And so I had to work my way all the way back down through those branches, get the other stick, climb all the way back up. And at this point now it was a 60 degree evening, I'm sweating. And so not how I wanted to have my hunt start. I did shoot a deer that night though. And so there you have it. I did overcome adversity, but those were my couple B team reports. So there you have it. We've been out there. We've made mistakes. We've looked like fools and we've kept the B team report humming. So there you have it. Hey, we've teased a little bit about our deer hunting, Mike, uh, quickly as we're toward the end of the show here, you've, you've as a non-resident, you know, you filled a, a antlerless tag in Pennsylvania, didn't you? I did. I did. Um, 
we, we have to say as a formal resident because it uh, kind of cheated because I do know the, the property rather well. But yeah, we had uh, uh, a nice break in the weather. We've had some uh, Arctic cold, a lot of wind, a lot of snow. And this was the first night that um, I really felt that I'd have a good chance with a with a steady wind. And so uh, long story short, what I'll do, like I already teased that, you know, it was a two night hunt, had deer around me the first night. There is a group of uh you know, four doe, mature doe, her um, daughter from the previous year, and then a buck and a doe fawn from this year. And um, I, I had a good night though, but I saw roughly 10 or 11 deer because there was another group that moved down the hill about a hundred yards away. I could see their, their silhouettes through the snow uh, with the snow as a backdrop, I should say. So um, didn't have any luck that first night, lost my orbit dampener. Thank you very much um, for that. And the second night I decided I'm going to move over and try that other group because they moved down in a very defined pattern, you know, almost like in a, a line that's a lot easier to hunt versus the ones that kind of mill around you and potentially get a chance to get downwind of you. Um, so the second night, as I said, I went in there, um, hunted the spot, cold hanging hunt. But what I like about this spot is it's in hill country and we had a south-southwest wind, which would put the deer bedding facing that east-northeast side of the hill. And when they when they bed there, we know which side they roll down on. And, and your line is they come rolling off the hill like potatoes because when there's snow in the ground, they, you can see these little brown orbits, like um, oval things kind of just walking down in droves. And so I, I moved over about 100 yards and... Um, picked a spot that I thought would be good between these two little fingers as the hill bleeds down into this creek bottom. Now, what's nice about this is I go in a little bit later. I have to go in about 3.30 to 3.45 because that's when the sun moves around that south southwest side of the mountain and it shades the east-northeast side and the thermals start to fall. So those deer are bedding on that upper third with the thermals rising to them all day, wind coming over their back. And when that sun drops on the other side, the thermals will start to fall. That allows me to slip in there and to those doe, they have no idea that I'm below them now. And they come down to me with the wind of their back, the thermals falling. And if you pick the right trail, you're going to have a good hunt. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I had the four from the previous night come down at an angle from over a hundred yards away, right to in, in front of me. And um, obviously the younger ones uh, are always the the most eager. They were, all around me, my shooting lanes at like 15 yards. The daughter from the previous year is the one that um, came in at 25 yards through an opening that I hadn't prepared for. And the mom, she, you know, she's smart doe. She stayed up high about 40 yards out through a bunch of brush that I couldn't get a shot at. And so as uh, light was fading, I decided, okay, I need to take the 18 uh, the month old. And so you heard my struggles about trying to get my range finder out and pick that trail. It was 25 yards. She was quartering away, browsing. And um, I went through my shot process, cut it loose, and she ran well, probably like 60 yards and piled right up. So it was a good night. I did not have Mr. Pinizzato around to help me drag. So again, that's another, another one that he'll owe me for the future. But beyond that, um, I'm really happy to have another deer in the freezer late season. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a good hunt for you, and like you said, you had two days to get it done. You used previous information and knowledge to get close, 
you know, when you got your opportunity, you made good on it. And with regard to the drag, not only was I not there to drag it, I was texting you pictures of Ron dragging my deer out at Delaware. Exactly. Yep. So I'm living a charmed life here, I admit it. And so I strategically time my time, my trips away from home whenever there's a possibility you might shoot something. At least it seems that way. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just, you know, briefly, I was in, got a chance to go to Delaware. I have made it a point to go that week after Christmas and before New Year, the New Year. And I had a, a buck tag to fill, but also some antlerless tags as well. Didn't end up getting a buck, although I had, I saw a real giant the first night out. And he got to within 40 yards and was staring me right in the face. And just, I did not get, just, you just can't get that shot. All you have is that neck exposed. He's working a licking branch, looking right at me. He had to be 20 inches wide, just a beautiful big buck. And I had to watch him walk away and saw a couple other nice bucks throughout the week, had some wind issues, just a little bit of bad luck. And, but I did fill two doe tags. And so that wrapped up a season where I ended up taking six deer. Although, I mean, I guess I could still go out here in Pennsylvania, but I'm feeling a little bit lazy right now, to be honest with you. And uh, we'll see. But anyway, I, I had originally given my, graded my season as I think a C in a previous episode. I'm going to upgrade it. I'm going to say when you shoot six deer, that's not bad. That's pretty good. So I'm going to upgrade it to a, a uh, yeah, I got a buck too. I guess I got to give myself a B. I'll give myself a B for this year. Does that seem more reasonable? I think so. I think that's it. Cause you had a, a really good year. It started off very slow and you really have just been building momentum as the season has went on. So it's getting better and better and better. So I think a B is a fair grade. Yep. Disappointed. I didn't end up getting a buck in Delaware, but uh, pretty restrictive out there and what it is want to shoot. And so nothing wrong with that. All right, folks, let's go ahead and call it a show here. Uh, what I want to, uh, I want to wish everybody, excuse me, wish everybody again, a happy new year, a great start to your 2023. Uh, if you are, if you do have a resolution, maybe you can add to it to do one more thing for deer or hunting than you did last year. Maybe that's becoming active with NDA, being part of a branch, habitat work. We're starting to think about that as the, as we head into the new year, or even just take somebody hunting. So something that, again, will help deer hunting, I think, is a good thing to resolve to do as we head into a new year. With that, folks, great having you listening again. We appreciate it. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer. <laughs>